Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hello, Jack, my co-host, my friend. How are you doing this fine Sunday afternoon? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, Alec. Uh, having a nice weekend so far. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been a good weekend. It's been busy. And we're, we're topping it all off. You know, the cherry on top is that we get to record another fascinating episode of a, a topic that relates to Web3. Yeah, exactly. And uh, today we, uh, we're covering one that I think is... Is very highly related to a few we've done before and might seem like duplication at first glance. We're talking about digital cash and we say that all the time when we talk about Bitcoin. But actually, I think there's a lot more to dig into that maybe we haven't touched on before, including, you know, the history of that term and different systems. So, yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we kick off with some definitions first just to, to lay the ground on what we think digital cash is. So, yeah, go ahead, Alec. What do you, what do you think? Straight in there. Um, well, I would say that cash is it's a legal medium of exchange, right? It's like a kind of, I say, a, a constant maybe medium exchange that's traditionally issued and maintained by the government. Um, a tangible good is probably like when we were talking before, it's like allows e-commerce basically to have standards that we can kind of procure different goods and kind of adhere to the same standards when we're procuring things. Um, and I guess digital cash is just the exact same but in the digital world right yeah exactly it's a pretty simple one really i mean it does involve i think this topic needs we need to talk about the meaning of you know money itself and again mm. neither of us really monetary theory experts but you need a kind of basic grasp of these terms so for me you know if you think of money as all, all the different forms with which you can uh, pay for services use as a medium of exchange store value etc cash is the physical subset of money mm. in general and then digital cash is simply the digital representation of physical cash so it's essentially trying to replicate the properties and the functionality of normal cash physical cash in a digital realm essentially yeah which is it's kind of weird sounds a bit like a, a bit of a contrast or a bit of a controversy to say okay well cash is the physical subset of money which is every kind of legal medium of cons of consistent exchange and then digital cash is no longer the physical version of that. So you're like, okay, why is that not money then? And hopefully we kind of get 
into the, the depths of the difference between money and cash and what digital cash kind of hopes to replicate cash, but in, in the digital world, what the advantages and benefits of that are. But you were right earlier on in saying that we have touched on some of this stuff before, especially in the token episodes, because I mean, I guess cash is probably one of the most well-known tokens that people kind of have kind of a tangible understanding of. So there will be a tiny bit of duplication, but I think it's really important to get to grips with the history and the evolution of cash and money to really understand, like, because, I mean, you know, history comes around in waves, right, in circles, and it, it were kind of the things that we're experiencing now, the reasonings and justifications for digital cash uh, are actually things that we've experienced before, and there's actually kind of a precedent that's been set in the past, and I think we're seeing that come about again. So I think going into the history will be, you know, interesting for us, definitely, but also kind of set the tone for why we want need digital cash in the kind of, in the current age. Yeah, exactly. So why don't we kick it off by going, you know, all the way back to the start as we do when we talk about money. And I know we have before about, okay, the very earliest form of, of exchange really was what we call the barter system. So this is how, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago, you would have been trading goods and services directly for other goods and services. So there wasn't a medium of exchange to mediate that exchange. You would just directly, you know, give your, um, your, your, your barrel of grain for, uh, some a, a basket of apples or something, right? And and they refer to this, I think, as the they call it the double coincidence of wants problem that you you come mm. up to here because you need two people, you know, you need someone who wants the apples at the same time as someone who wants the the, the, the barrel of grain or something. Yeah, so I'm going to call BS on this since we first did um, our tokens episode and we talked about this barter system. I've done some reading and actually the barter system where we kind of think of it on like a societal or high civilization level didn't exist like the the problem that you just kind of defined makes it almost impossible to imagine like a bar society remember we were talking about mm. it in episode three tokens and like hey how the hell can i as a chicken farmer convert my chickens into chaos like it just doesn't work and actually the kind of the current understanding is that bar systems didn't really exist that the kind of the stages of evolution of exchange were very much we had these these tribes of 150 max that we kind of talked about before and they were kind of quite socialist in a way there was no like mm. exchanging to an extent especially of like commodities and like food and goods everyone contributed to a single tribe um, and obviously, when we expanded those tribes out to civilizations and all this kind of stuff, it was no longer possible to contribute in that way. And they said, well, as soon as that started to happen, then we started to have the next stage, which was commodity money, like standards of mediums of exchange that actually facilitated the exchange. So sorry to call you out nice and early, but I thought that was quite an interesting twist on what we said the last time we talked about this. Well, keeping me on my toes, Alec. I mean, this is the thing I think... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely say I think the barter system is is one of these things you learn about in school, right? As like the early days of of exchange. And yeah, I, I'm kind of not very, I'm not familiar with the details of of uh, medieval history and, and things like that. <laughs> but I, what I can imagine from your saying is like, yeah, it, it, we what we call a barter system is actually a thing where by people are exchanging, but because of this, you know, this. It, this 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 problem of you need you need the coincidence of once then actually that's not in him practice that's never happening so you're just having people sharing things with each other in the expectation that things will be shared with them when they need it so it's kind of the barter the barter system is kind of a nice euphemism for actually yeah. what was a fairly socialist situation <laughs> yeah i think maybe that's the issue maybe it's that the people 
hate the term socialist. They're like, instead of calling it socialism, everyone contributing to an overall game with their, the need mm. profit, they're like, we'll just call it barter system. That sounds to me slightly more capitalist and all this kind of stuff. So maybe that was the reason. But yeah, barter system didn't exist on any kind of large scale at all. It was more small tribes yeah, in a socialist system contributing to the tribe overall. Because like we said, very difficult for someone who specializes in chicken farming to assume they're going to get, you know, milk and yeah. cheese and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that was the, the first age. Socialism was the first age. And then we moved away from that as these tribes expanded into kind of, you know, started to globalize, started to expand into more society level, um, well, society level populations. And then we moved to commodity money. So this is the first type of money that we're going to speak about commodity money. So this is very much like goods used as a medium exchange. We can think of like useful goods, like the best examples probably be grain, cattle, spices, things that actually have intrinsic value being used as mediums of exchange. Yeah, exactly. And this is the the one kind of, I think the as you're saying, the motivation for this was effectively what we refer to as scale, right? Especially in, in mm. Web3. It was the fact that this this previous society, barter or otherwise, did not scale very well to large populations. So you needed to have some kind of commodity or some kind of fixed medium of exchange that you could use to actually, you know, resolve the, the that that issue that you never have a coincidence of once. You need uh, a commodity that you can exchange at the point where you want something, and that then the person buying that from you can can then use to buy something else later, etc. So yeah, it's interesting yeah. and. Um, you know, you had all different types of, of, of mediums you'd use, right? Like the, the grain and cattle, spices and things like that. Metals uh, as well came a little bit later than that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a super interesting period, I think, when, when that started. And it just shows the need for when you have large popular societies, you have to have a uniform medium exchange to function, really. Yeah, and you've already got like one of the first words in that's going to come later. Scale was important. Another one was trust. Not trust necessarily in the underlying technology because it's just grain, but trust that people would want this. Everyone at this time needs grain. Everyone maybe didn't necessarily need cattle all the time, but they understood there was always going to be an intrinsic desire or want to have cattle. So they trusted in the exchange of these. Um, an interesting one for me was that um, the ancient Romans actually used salt as a medium exchange because they always assumed mm. that people would, would want salt. And it's actually where um, the term salary comes from it's salt ah, salary yeah. yeah interesting factoid to get in nice and early didn't know you're multilingual alec that's, uh, that's a new one <laughs> yeah then awesome. you the next one that you were talking about was metal coins and the link there is kind of obvious we said that like you know it's commodities things that have in, in kind of intrinsic value that were useful to society and you know in the same way coins were just kind of uh, an easier quite not easier i guess easier to transact form of this right because you know, metals, gold, silvers, even coppers early on, kind of the early, in the earlier versions, this they had intrinsic value. They could be used for you know, jewelry, weapons, all this kind of stuff. And I guess some people might be saying, okay, well, it, you know, if I'm a farmer, does gold necessarily have intrinsic value to me? I'm not going to be you know, eating gold as like a, um, as an, an absolute necessity. But you, I think it comes back to the trust. You know that there's a, a kind of a need or a desire for gold in society. Um, and that's the reason that they could invest in these and they still have like tangible value. And I've seen there's actually been a lot of people that say, okay, well, gold doesn't actually have a tangible value. Like it's not, 
since it's only been in like the last 200 years or something like that that we started to use in specific like manufacturing process and engines and things like this it's actually a good it's actually quite a good point is that gold maybe doesn't have a super tangible value it's kind of the societal perception of value that we've placed on gold and then i've seen some people compare and contrast this with like bitcoin and say well you know bitcoin doesn't have a, a tangible value like gold and you kind of well gold we kind of put this pressure and this kind of emphasis on gold in society for 4,000 years. So we know there's always going to, well, maybe not always, but there is going to be a societal want for gold. And that doesn't really exist in Bitcoin yet, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the other analogy with with gold-backed money and using gold as a commodity for, for monetary systems is this, this idea of scarcity. And you'll see people talking mm. about that all the time in relation to Bitcoin because it's difficult to mine more gold it, it has a mm. it has a relatively fixed or low inflating supply which is why i mean when people talk about money they talk about it having a very uh, a few distinct characteristics so one of them being a medium of exchange one of them being a good store of value and one of them being a good unit of account and to achieve these three things scarcity is is, is quite important to that because if you had a, a a very highly inflating or highly fluctuating supply of that of that metal and i think this is also why you know you're saying there's a demand for gold in society mm -hmm. but it's also not something that it, it's it, why it was kind of a sweet spot i think my understanding is that because it's it's not used industrially quite as much as other commodities that keeps the supply more more fixed or there's not a demand mm -hmm. in other places that it, it becomes sen sensible as a as a choice of commodity to be used as money because you know that becomes the main thing and you know obviously there's demand from other sources like uh, like your royalties and, and, and things but that combination of it being scarce and it having some kind of utility in society but not one where you're building everything from it you know in the iron age you're not using gold for obvious reasons um to build everything so it would have been more difficult to use uh, those different kind of metals as uh, as commodities and you and, and as you say you see this in uh, this analogy with Bitcoin, because you have an associated cost and difficulty with mining Bitcoin as well, and mm. also the fact that it has a fixed supply. So in that sense, you could say Bitcoin does mirror gold in, in a way because it because it has a relatively fixed supply um, or Bitcoin has a fixed supply and gold has a relatively fixed or low inflating supply. Um, and there's a kind of physical or energetic cost to uh, getting more of it to mining more of it uh, right now. Uh, the analogy breaks down a little bit once yeah, issued, yeah. Bitcoin is issued, but we'll, we'll we'll deal with that later. Yeah, so like I think people can kind of quite easily imagine the idea of metal coins acting like servicing exchange as a medium exchange. Kind of makes sense. There's a lot, a very easy relation to paper notes today that represents something. There's a central authority which issues the standardized coins, and then within society. There's a kind of knowledge of what that coin represents and what that coin can, can, has the purchasing power, which is probably the term, for that coin. So people can get behind that. And that was kind of the standard for you know 2,000 years when it was invented really in 600 BC by the Lydians and all the way through to probably the 17th century. Um, but, you know, there was actually some challenges to the use of it. One, it's pretty heavy. You know, you want to exchange a lot of metal coins to buy a house or something like that. 
that's quite inconvenient. You don't want to be lugging around these heavy metal coins all the time. Mm. Um, another one was, which is quite sounds like quite a weird one, was the wearing problem. Like the idea of like mm. exchanging coins constantly, you actually get this um, kind of this this wearing down of the coin, and over time you actually lose value and weight of the coin, which seems a bit mad to to me now. But back in the day, that was actually one of the main reasons that they actually moved to the next system that we're going to talk about. And the final problem they had was this thing called the replacement problem, where it's like if I have, you know, 500 gold coins and I lose 500 gold coins because I'm taking it everywhere and it's heavy and everyone knows I've got 500 gold coins, they're gone forever. Same problem with cash, right? They're gone forever. So the next era that kind of surpassed metal coins was commodity-backed paper money. So it was literally representing the physical gold, for example, that's in a vault somewhere by a bank with paper notes that represents ownership and you can exchange these much more easily much more convenient paper notes that represents ownership of gold that's say held by a bank somewhere yeah exactly and it kind of this this solved a lot of problems you know you have the the Bretton Woods system that pegs the US dollar and, and that becomes a kind of global standard to the the price of gold and one of the big challenges this also solves is divisibility because you know, you need if you have a bar of gold, it's not very easy to, to pay for something that costs much, much less than a bar of gold. Mm. And this kind of links on to the idea of micropayments. We've talked about a lot, you know, being able to do smaller, smaller payments. If you're lugging around bars of gold, whether you're wearing wearing them or not, it's very hard to divide that for smaller payments for, for kind of day-to-day transactions. And that's also linked to the scarcity. Um, you know, there, there's a bit of a mismatch between the, the the value of what you want to exchange, you know, for day-to-day purchases. And how it's in, it, how it's stored up in, in, in physical uh, gold stores. So yeah, when when you come to commodity backed paper money, and in, in in particular the gold standard and gold backed commodity money, then you have this ability to issue notes, uh, physical cash against that that commodity, basically in stored in reserve, um, and, and pegged to the price of of the commo- of the currency you're issu- issuing, say uh, US dollar, and yeah. Then it then it becomes much more much easier and also there's you know this will be related when we come back to you know evolving to digital cash but there are a lot of costs associated even even with modern uh, physical cash but even more so with securing uh, commodity money you know that's part of why mm. you want to move to commodity backed paper money because all of a sudden yeah. the security problem is much less if you're if you're having to just secure a few physical notes as opposed to the gold bar that you might use and can't divide so there's a few things there true like there are also some issues that kind of come into play around fraud though right like it's very Mm -hmm. hard for me to fraud a solid gold bar if i'm exchanging with you it's very easy for you to test on the spot but a paper note especially when this kind of came into into practice and say the 17th century like it's very easy to fraud a paper note just saying this is from the bank alec has one gold bar here it is that kind of thing so fraud was a big challenge that actually came about from commodity-backed paper money Another big one was the idea of um, printing money and inflation, mm. right? So at, at the start of this, especially in the West, it was around like the 17th century where they started to have like commodity-backed paper money. It was very much like the paper money represented gold that you had in reserve. So you couldn't overinflate. You couldn't all of a sudden say, you know, I have more paperback money because I don't all of a sudden have lots more gold. But it was around, um, I think it was after World War One and after like the, the economic crises, a lot of people had lost gold to war and there's been spent overspending and stuff like that. But they still needed 
money in the economy to pay, you know, soldiers, to pay for buildings, to pay for mm. projects. So all of a sudden you say, saw that countries were starting to write paper notes, uh, commodity-backed paper money, allegedly, that represented gold in reserve that they didn't actually have. And this is where we started to see the advent, in a way, of the next stage, which is fiat. Um, and fiat, you know, it blows my mind. Like still to this day, fiat blows my mind. So we have commodities as money, understood. There's tangible benefit there. Then we have commodity-backed paper money. Again, it's underpinned. It's just an easy way to represent something that still has tangible use and tangible benefits and is practical and all this kind of stuff. And then we come to the next era of money, which is fiat, which is this idea of paper notes that are now not backed by anything. And one of the main reasons that this happened was after World War II. Like I said, a lot of countries were in debt and they no longer had the gold reserves to actually, you know, be able to invest in the economies. There was like a whole problem with obviously the Great Depression and all this kind of stuff where countries needed to invest in the economy, but they yeah. didn't have the gold in reserve to actually issue money to pay for development and all this kind of stuff. So all of a sudden, the great minds of the world got together and said, well, why don't we just start to make up our own currency that doesn't have to be backed to anything? And you already started to see the overlap potential with Bitcoin. Um, and they started to use what was fiat. And yeah, that's the whole system that we're working in now, this kind of made up paper money. And, you know, hate it or love it. That, that's the system we're in right now. Yeah, people call Web3 magic internet money. But really, uh, fiat money is like magic paper money or magic government money. <laughs> Monopoly um, money. <laughs> <laughs> Monopoly money. But yeah, it's. I think it's interesting as as you you kind of articulate it really nicely. There's this change in the trust model really as you go from commodity money, pure commodity money, to uh, commodity backed paper money, and then to fiat, which is essentially government backed paper money. Because you know, going from commodity to co to commodity backed, you as you said, you have the counterfeit problem becomes uh, more prevalent because it, it's easy to verify that gold is gold. It's not so easy to verify that this bank note is actually associated with some gold. Uh, so you're mm. trusting the issuer of those notes. You're trusting that they haven't been duplicated by the issuer, et cetera, et cetera. And then you move from commodity-backed paper money to government-backed paper money or fiat, where you don't even have an, an asset in reserve necessarily to uh, to verify against. It's It's more based on, to be honest, as I understand it, it's more based on confidence in the economy of that country, right? which is much exactly. harder to define, much harder to verify. There's lots of, of different factors you have to take in to control that. It's almost impossible to validate um, you know, how or why a currency should be at a certain price. It just becomes this big free market problem. Um, but yeah, so we've kind of, the, the, the modern state of money um, prior to, to, to kind of Bitcoin and, and Web3 based digital money is much more, government trusted that's the kind of that's the commodity you're that if that's the commodity if there is a, if there is one that you're you're using now yeah exactly uh, you've hit the nail on the head i think like we were at the stage of commodity backed paper money and the problem was the governments and central banks at the time which kind of existed in a way they didn't have the flexibility to invest in the economy and to push the economy and have the tools at their disposal to get them out of the great depression so they came up with fiat, this imaginary monopoly money, effectively, at the time, that they had the flexibility, they had complete control over how much was in circulation, like they could start to control you know, uh, inflation, you know, through interest rates and printing lots of money and all this kind of stuff. And it gave them the tools to then control the economy. But with that, like a lot of critiques of the fiat system said it gave them too much power, and were now completely beholden 
to, you know, not a few individuals, but a few entities that effectively have the responsibility of keeping currency stable with only, you know, one or two mechanisms at the disposal, which is mm. interest rates to get people who have money in their bank to either say, start saving because it will give you loads of money if you do save um, or start spending. And we won't give you much money if you do save and printing money. And, you know, a lot of people, are well, a lot of critiques of the fiat system would like a return to the gold standard because they kind of believe that this this control, this this flexibility that um, central banks actually have is leading to more economic crises, for example. Yeah, and you can, this is, you know, I think actually a few years ago when I had even less understanding of how money worked, uh, this idea of money printing leading to inflation definitely was not as pressing a concern in my mind because I hadn't lived through an example of that happening and it being rife, but then obviously went through COVID and we saw effectively money printing across the globe, in particular in places like America, you know, just to, to, to stimulate the economy. We, you yeah. know, you, you hear the phrase stimmy checks in America. <laughs> uh, and, and that's also quite funny, I think, because the, the, they were all issued in check-based form, you know, not digitally, very, very notably to people. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're just seeing the effects of that now. And you're seeing in the UK as well, uh, that lever, as you said, of the central banks using interest rates very clearly is the, the, the way to, to control inflation that we're experiencing. Yeah. So if you're trying to buy a house or get a mortgage in the UK right now, it's pretty scary. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of wraps up the journey all the way from barter systems, whether or not they existed, yeah. to fiat yeah. money. I would want to, one thing that I think we need to talk about is we've talked about central banks. And I just want to introduce the concept of what a central mm. bank is very yeah. briefly, just so people are, are on board with it. So most people's interaction daily will be with a commercial bank like your Santander, HSBC. These are privately run banks that are service providers, right? They're for profit. They give out loans. They charge interest on loans. They invest your money in places and they make profit, right? Private entities. So your bank account with Santander, that is private money held by Santander on your behalf, okay? Then we have central banks. These are kind of public-private entities. A bit weird, right? And their whole mandate is to regulate a, a country's currency. So when we talked about introducing fiat, which was these kind of know, fake monopoly money-style things, we have to regulate the trust in that currency so people can feel confident in exchanging it because it's no longer gold back. So the emphasis and the importance of central banks when the fiat systems came in was, well, became key. It was really important. It was critical to say. Um, so they issue and regulate the currency. Um, and they can also, you know, kind of do that with raising and lowering interest rates and printing money and have like financial systems. And all that. But their whole mandate is financial stability of the currency that they run. So like the Bank of England is the, the pounds kind of um, regulatory body to ensure stability for the pound. And yeah, every most countries or well, every um, kind of currency will have some central bank that, that does that. Yeah, exactly. And that, that I, I'm glad you defined it so clearly because it's, it's, it's important to know that there is literally an entity in most countries around the world now that have a, their own fiat currency in the central bank that effectively has humans making decisions about the effectively about the value of a, a currency, which is a huge move um, away from the earlier forms of money, which, you know, dependent on the scarcity of gold, for example, being dependent more on a, a an intrinsic property of the world, right? Which you can't control. Exactly. When you look like we compare countries, like 
So most people believe in the dollar because they're like, okay, this is a very highly regulated, trusted system that's existed. There's not much volatility in the economy, all this kind of stuff. But like you said, humans are fallible. You look at Zimbabwe and the currency they use, that's an example of human intervention of the currency, human regulation of a currency that went very wrong. So the trust in that system failed completely. Lots of people pulled money out, hyperinflation, the economy has suffered massively because of that. And a lot of people there actually will use the dollar as a means of exchange because that is stable and trusted because you know the humans involved in that do a much better job of regulating that currency. So I'm really glad you brought the human element mm. there. Exactly. So I think that also, you know, is a good way to, to move on to the thing we're actually meant to be talking about now <laughs> we've we've built it up is is digital cash or digital money as well. And we'll talk about both of those because they are slightly slightly different. But that is one of the motivations for moving to a digital cash because they can be implemented in a way that is more robust that is is not dependent on the whims of individuals necessarily so just to kind of briefly set the scene what is digital cash and, and you know, how long has it been a thing so we said money can exist in you know commodity commodity backed or fiat forms um but that money is is also electronic in a lot of cases mm-hmm. and and the figure is staggering it's if you depending on where you check it's anywhere from 92 percent up to kind of 97 percent of all wow. money supply globally is currently in an electronic form so in a bank account somewhere of some kind is not part of physical cash which is crazy it's just numbers right it's just numbers mm. on a screen you're like what the hell that is so crazy just numbers on someone's computer somewhere yeah, that's magic internet money for sure um <laughs> so this is as you say it is a scary scary thought and so when we say digital money, we might as well say money because mm. most of it is digital. Most of it is electronic already. And this is because, you know, we've moved to accessing and transferring funds electronically in general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we still have physical cards, but they are interacting when we tap them, you know, to get on the tube or pay at a coffee shop. They are accessing electronic and digital systems to transfer money that are transferring mm. money between digital bank accounts where all the money is digitally residing so it's it's, it's massively digital already in case anyone yeah. didn't realize this which is something that i also i also wasn't aware of until a couple of years ago yeah and like you said i think the, like even the physical cards like they're dying out now like i have a, a digital card on my yeah. phone right now for the exact same reasons people prefer digital money that they want a digital card convenience right it's all about convenience at the end of the day and like it's really interesting. Like I think when people think of the money they own, they don't really realize that it's private. And I do want to kind of really emphasize the difference between private and public. Mm-hmm. When we talk about like physical cash that is like issued by a government, that is public money. You own the cash. And this is a very big Web3 concept, right? Ownership. It's very hard to some, for someone to take away that £20 note that I have in my back pocket. That is real ownership right there. When we talk about money, as Jack just said, like numbers in my bank account with Santander, that is private money. Santander is effectively looking after my money on my behalf. If all of a sudden Santander wants to say, you're not allowed to touch this money anymore, they can do that and they have done that. Like the example we gave was those, um, those lorry drivers in Canada, right? They were getting lots of sponsorship for their protests in Canada. And all of a sudden, the Canadian government were like, okay, I want you to switch off their bank accounts so they cannot access any of the funds that's been sent to them. And that's an example of private money and the kind of what can happen when things go wrong. And like a lot of people will be like, okay, well, you know, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm, I'm fine with that. Like if it stops terrorists and all this kind of stuff, 
that's fine with me. But if you start to stop protesters, that's a big infringement on freedoms, right? Just because you agree with the current government and their ability to do that with those people. What if a government comes into power that all of a sudden you don't start to agree with their policies and you're one of those people that they consider a non-desirable and they cut off your money? Mm. So that this ownership thing that we talk about in Web3 really does apply to money. And it's one of the kind of the driving principles behind digital cash, because that is you know, ownership. Yeah, exactly. And it's, ownership is such a key concept, because when you think about something like physical cash, it, it, I think the term is a bearer instrument. So essentially the bearer, mm. the person holding that note is 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 deemed the owner of it, right? And can use yeah. it at the point of sale, right? As, as we expect. And a lot of the money doesn't necessarily function like that because there's no way of, of proving that there's ownership information stored in databases. You mm. have to verify against banks and things like that. And digital cash, I think, is very much trying to replicate that bearer instrument aspect of cash, which is crucial. So if you can present the correct cryptographic information in the case of a digital cash system, that's that's the equivalent of having physical ownership. And there's lots of nuance about the term ownership um, in, 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 in the crypto world. And, and the, you know, various legal bodies around the world are trying to get to grips with this, trying to define what does ownership actually mean in the context mm. of digital assets and digital cash. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I, I think I want to very quickly touch on the history of digital cash itself because it does even though we've just said this is kind of the end point of the whole history of cash and money there is a, a little bit of history of the term itself but yeah go on do we want to talk about some of the before we go into digital cash talk about some of the challenges that we see with digital money right now i kind of just briefly touched on the ownership mm. one but like you know you're talking about 92 percent, did you say of all money mm. is digital which is in a lot of ways private um as part of that we we kind of there's a lot of monopoly on private money oh, yeah. okay, especially oh, yeah, say yeah. in the us for example there's like four card providers was it mastercard visa i can't remember the other two amex and something else like it's very centralized and in a way monopolies in a lot of ways are bad it means they can charge whatever fee they want and have non-competition all this kind of stuff so like i say this is high fees very high fees, middlemen involved in the checking between, you know, account one, account two, and all the steps in between. So right now it's very expensive, even though it is digital, it's all about efficiency and speed and all this kind of stuff. Digital money is very expensive. There's lots of middlemen, high fees, lots of minimum payments, for example, not being able to spend on your Amex below that 150 and all this kind of stuff because the costs are too high. So I just want to set the scene there that there is a lot of problems with digital money as we kind of think of it right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yeah, this high fees and middlemen is exactly what we talk about when we when we talk about Bitcoin and micropayments side of things. These are This is the one of the things that you're you're trying to move away from a digital cash so not just replicating cash systems but also when when you're replicating cash systems in a digital context you don't want to introduce the same middlemen that cause mm -hmm. the high fees in most digital money that we interact with i think that's a really yeah. good point to, to that you've made there so yeah i think with that said let's just recap very quickly you know how we've what the current state of digital cash is and how we've got here because it's actually quite interesting so again for, for context why are we moving to digital cash uh, in addition to what you've said you know the use of physical cash is dying significantly mm. so i saw i saw some really interesting figures uh for the uk in particular so there were apparently 23 million people in the uk which is a very significant portion of of, uh, of our small island 
they they probably didn't use any cash payments in 2021. And thinking back, I could well have been one of those people, you know, in 2021. Mm. I don't really recall having physical cash in my pocket much lately. And there are predictions that, you know, it's going to go to kind of just 6% of global payments being uh, being non-cash based in 10 years, which is it's tiny, right? That's crazy, especially when like, what, I mean, I'm biased and it's a bit weird when I think I think of the West as being slightly more digitally advanced and maybe less economically developed countries. The idea of everyone being able to make a digital payment there as well it's just crazy like less than six percent that wow that's that's mad and this is a, a concern right for central banks is when we're talking about their priority being maintenance of fiscal policy and all this kind of stuff cash is a big part of that and when things get into the private money realm it's slightly well not I mean, not just private money but also when we talk about crypto and all this kind of stuff kind of gets out of their control more and more and i assume they don't like that yeah, exactly, and 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 that that private of the privacy issue is is becoming huge when you have governments now thinking about things like CBDC, which we'll come on to. But people are really worried about the privacy implications of of moving to more and more digital money. I mean, ironically, given what we've just said, we should already be quite worried, given how much is electronic. But it's actually mm. the advent of these of of CBDCs and things where people are starting to think, well, are we going to eliminate? physical cash entirely is the system going to move completely into this digital version where maybe in some countries privacy is not going to be uh, particularly well preserved in these systems so it's a big topic right now so i understand the perspective of why we would want digital cash from the user perspective right I, I i care about my privacy i don't want these private banks seeing all my transactions and all this kind of stuff i like cash because it's peer-to-peer -peer, which is the word we love to use the phrase we love to use peer-to-peer -peer, and there's no but that also means efficient in a way because there's no middlemen but also i get the privacy and security and all this kind of stuff because of that um and you know you could say the central bank has a responsibility to enable that because they kind of work on behalf of the citizens but the central bank also wants digital cash because they want to have some kind of control right still and we're saying that more if more currency is being pushed towards the private sector potentially cryptocurrencies which central banks are opposed to we'll kind of come on to it a bit later that's kind of moving outside of their control now it makes it harder for them to regulate fiscal policy right so okay now i understand the motivations of why people want it and why central banks want it mm. yeah exactly and I, I think yeah the motivations have never been higher than they are right now mm. um so speaking of that you know we're talking about the conditions right now in the world in 2023 but actually people have been thinking about digital cash systems for a very, very long time in kind of the 80s, as early as, as the, uh, the 80s and 90s, really. So one of the very first and very famous examples of a digital cash system was something called uh, eCash, or it, it was the company it was called DigiCash by David Chaum. And he was a, a really interesting pioneer in, in, in the space of cryptography and digital cash systems. And he developed this idea of what we call blind signatures, where you know you allow the bank to sign uh, messages to sign transactions without knowing exactly what mm. is being transferred, and this is kind of a halfway house between having a central central issued money, but also allowing people to preserve privacy when they transfer mm. it. So it's really interesting, but it never really completely overcame that barrier of okay, you need a central issue where it's always online checking all transactions. Again, back yeah. to that word scale scaled terribly. And eventually, mm -hmm. DigiCash, I think, went, went, went bust because it was trying to run this system. 
and and had kind of poor adoption. Then you also had some kind of early, and again, there's there's all these cryptographers, the kind of um, this band of, of of brothers who were who were <laughs> developing these systems uh, that also inspired Satoshi Nakamoto. But there was also Wei Dai, for example. He had a protocol called B Money, which was looking at again looking at digital signatures and how mm. you can use them to to authorize payments. And all of these different people who were thinking about various different cryptographic techniques for money, for infant digital mm-hmm. money, this all inspired what we saw with Bitcoin and Satoshi Nakamoto in, in his white paper released in 2008. That that combined loads of these different things, right? It was heavily inspired by them, has references to things like Weidai's B money uh, mm-hmm. in there. Uh, but yeah, he, really Bitcoin is so significant because it was the first system to put all the pieces together and create a digital cash system that did not need an online central authority to to validate all the transactions. It didn't have this single point of failure risk for monetary policy, like you said, we have with central banks and and fiat money. And it also enables things like micropayments. So it overcomes that that gold bullion fractionalization problem that we said, the divisibility. So it kind of Mm -hmm. did all these things at once. And that's I think that's why we're in where we are now, where digital cash, digital money is so heavily about blockchain and Web3. Yeah, I like that you kind of you mentioned micropayments as well. Like we kind of say that digital cash should represent the or replicate the properties of cash within the digital space. But we can really go one step further and actually you know, add new characteristics and abilities that we didn't have with cash. And we should be able to do that, right, in the digital space. Yeah. And I think when we go into a bit later, when we go into the characteristics of digital cash at a high level, we will mention some of the, the kind of the reasons or the abilities that digital cash should have or generally does have and why it's so important in the digital age. So really quickly, how does digital cash relate to Web3? We kind of touched on it a little bit, Jack, but in your mind, what's the alignment there? Yeah, I mean, for me, that it's very clear what I just said in Bitcoin being the very first really successful digital cash implementation that had all the properties that you'd want of a digital cash system. So no central point of failure, low mm-hmm. fees to use it, uh, used all the cryptographic techniques at its disposable, disposable at its disposal, like digital signatures, for example. It, re- it really you know having robust digital cash for the internet and and you know at the time when it was when it came out we'd already gone into the world of your paypals and and visas dominating online transactions so for me web3 is is coming from the same place that bitcoin was right and and, and digital cash is just effectively the money we'll use in, in web3 and all the principles around privacy so maintaining user privacy the ownership piece you meant and how you can you can you can have digital money, digital cash act as a bearer instrument. So you can present me with a Bitcoin transaction that's signed and valid, and I can check that. Um, And all I need to know is that that signature is valid. I don't need to know who you are. I just need to Mm. get the transaction in my hands. It acts like a bearer instrument in that sense and replicates physical cash, but in a much more robust way so that they're intrinsically linked to me. Yeah, I like that. I like that you're kind of saying there's a, a principle alignment between Web3 and digital cash it's all around kind of ownership and with ownership comes the privacy preservation the increased security but there's also the underlying things around interoperability as well and i like that these kind of maybe 
disparate fields in a way have uh, so much overla- uh, overlap and alignment and they're kind of maybe the success of web3 is kind of completely dependent on the success of a digital cash engine like you say so much of web3 yeah. is based on bitcoin right exactly and i would also say you know efficiency is key i think when when, when we think about web3 it's very much how can we make processes more efficient and how can we do things in a better way than we could do before and when we talked earlier about physical money and even commodity monies, commodity backed monies, having a digital cash system is much more efficient than having a physical cash system. You don't have the same costs associated with storage and securing physical assets. Mm-hmm. Um, you can push things to the edges, like we talk about in data sovereignty, where people can actually self custody their own funds if they want to. So yeah, it's it's highly efficient from a user perspective, which is why I think it's it's a very much a Web three. Uh, it's a Web3 tool um, yeah. for me. And I think the, the big one that we kind of touch on sometimes is around the pro- it's characteristics. So we're kind of maybe getting into it a bit early, but the smart contracts and the programmability, like the idea of being able to, you know, uh, automatically give funds based on some fulfillment of a contract. And that comes down to the efficiency stuff, right? Um, so uh, should we go to ChatGPT, see, uh, see if we've covered everything? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, let's just round it off with, with ChatGPT. So uh, you, you go ahead, Alec, read us out what, what it thinks. So ChatGPT, I've asked it to explain digital cash for me. And a friend has said, digital cash refers to electronic representations of currency used for online transactions and other forms of digital commerce. Unlike physical currency, digital cash exists only in a digital form, making it well-suited for online and electronic activities. Below are some examples that constitute digital cash. So we have electronic money or e-money, then cryptocurrencies slash digital cash, and then CBDCs. So these are the three types. Mm. Okay, that's a that's an interesting one. So it's given us three different types, apparently. Yeah, and I, we, we didn't really mention CBDCs specifically as an example of, of uh, digital cash, and we kind of only hinted to it being on the horizon, but... It very much is another and a whole new classification under this umbrella of digital cash. So yeah, I think there's actually there's a lot to cover in going through the different types of digital cash. You know, as you said, digital currency, uh, cryptocurrencies, where there's even more different types to talk about, like stable coins, uh, mm. backed to, to, to fiat, and and they're commodity backed, algorithmic backed. There's so many different types, and now CBDCs. So I think that will be a really good topic for a second part of this episode, and I think this is a sensible place for us to kind of close off. We've covered the history, um, the extensive history of money and, and cash and, and now also of digital cash. And I think this is a good place to maybe pause and then we'll go into the details and drill down there uh, in the next episode. So yeah, with that, we'll say uh, thank you for listening wherever you may be and we'll join you next time to tangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.